This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Great War Supporter Podcast. We're here in Berlin, we are filming. But now, before we're filming, we're actually talking. What are we talking about today, Jesse? Wow, that was, that was a very German intro. Yeah. I like it. Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming Polish-Ukrainian War episode. Perhaps a little bit about the upcoming Rhineland occupation episode. And I think we might have a couple of Patreon questions. Um, cool. I mean, let's jump right in. Um, I haven't actually read the script yet for the Polish-Ukrainian uh, war episode. So why don't you tell me a bit about this topic? Well, it's not a topic that I had read a ton about before either. I knew that there was such a conflict. I knew a little bit uh, about some of the political questions at stake. But um, it's quite fascinating, actually, because one of the things that uh, stuck out at me is this constant recurring problem, uh, let's say, from the point of view of those who would like to found an independent and stable Ukrainian state, of this uh, position in between different forces that draws Ukrainians from different regions in different political directions. So you have two independent Ukrainian republics, uh, both called the Ukrainian People's Republic, which is very helpful. One of them just has a Western in front of it, which is the only way to keep them uh, straight. And one is sort of drawn towards its conflict with Bolshevik Russia and against the white Russians, and the other is drawn towards its conflict against Poland. And the two are not able to effectively cooperate. And of course, further east, there is a Soviet Ukrainian Republic under Russian Bolshevik control as well. So. And Nestor Magno and the anarchists, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a whole other level of local warlords uh, going on. I don't want to offend anybody by calling Nestor Magno a warlord, but I think it's, it's not a stretch uh, in some senses, military senses at least. But yes, you've got Magno, you've got Grigoriev, You've got, um, in the far west, a very small semi-autonomous region of uh, the minority Lemkos people. So it's the wild southeast, if you want to call it that. So um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a rate comparing them to the other Russian Civil War specific <laughs> theaters that we have visited, for example, the Baltics that we are visiting in the end of June now, um, on a scale from 1 to 10, how chaotic is it? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, it sounds a bit like an 11 almost. I was just going to say, I don't think it gets any more chaotic than Ukraine from 1917 to 1920. I mean, Latvia is a close second, but uh, it's just absolutely nuts. 
Of course, then you also have uh, allied intervention forces for sometimes Greek, uh, French, British. Um, you have the front swinging back and forth. I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I remember, I'm pretty sure the figure I remember reading, this was some years ago for another project, that Kiev changed hands something like 18 times wow. in the course of about three years. So well, I think by the fifth time, the people were probably uh, stop, uh, stop giving a, a fuck about it and just... Uh, I think it was every man for himself. They're like, as long as I don't get conscripted into some army and as long as I got something to eat, <laughs> I'm not interested in, in what else is going on. Uh, one thing that we, I mean, since it's called the Polish-Ukrainian war, that we will probably look in is uh, the situation with Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg. I think it probably has a fourth name even as It well. has two more. You could call it Lvov in Russian, or if you want to go the Yiddish uh, route, it's Lamberik. Great. I think from now on we will <laughs> spell out all five names. The episode uh, will be 45 uh, minutes long, <laughs> primarily because of the names. Um, so, I mean, this is like a territory which obviously both sides laid claim to. Um, I think even today it's a bit of a hot potato. I mean, mm -hmm. we were, went to Przemysl and we went to Lviv uh, when we visited Przemysl. Uh, I mean, like uh, some of the former forts of uh, Przemysl, the fortress ring there, like some of the sub-forts that are a bit more advanced are today in the no man's land between Ukraine and uh, and Poland, and we had some visits from uh, Europol uh, border guards on motorcycles when we were filming there, and had to give like advance notice to everyone that we were going around there. And I mean, you know, with a whole um, let's say westward movement of Poland in very big air quotation marks here um, uh, after World War II. Um, I think it's still from that time already a hot potato topic, but it seems that the tensions go back even further. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of things what you see today at the border. And I walked across that, uh, that border, which was quite um, a dehumanizing feeling when you're coming into the EU from outside. It's, it's not, it's not a, a simple procedure. But um, I mean, it's much easier if you have a EU passport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That war is still quite prominent in the historical memory, in particular of Poles, right? Even though that region of East Galicia and uh, Lviv slash Lvov is no longer in Poland, quite a lot of Poles still go there. It was covered in Poles, Polish tourists when I was there, especially going to the, the war-related sites. There's a big memorial and so on. Actually, there are two memorials, one next to each other. This was a, a political compromise from uh, 15 years ago because the Ukrainians didn't have a memorial, wanted one, and then how to kind of get that done. So there are two next to each other and there were lots of polls and I chatted with some of them and they basically all told me that they felt that this city was still Polish. And that essentially is also the claim that Poland has in uh, 1918, that this former province of Austria-Hungary had been part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth until the partitions at the end of the 18th century and that the Polish had kind of, they were a minority in the region but they were a majority in Lviv and they also were the upper class. So the Polish feeling was, well this region has belonged to us for centuries and we kind of 
determined its culture. We brought our Catholic civilization there. And the Ukrainians, who are almost all peasants, although they're the majority in the region, you know, they don't have as much of a right to this region as we do because we are the more significant civilization here. Is this uh, comparable to um, how the German, Baltic German nobility felt about their claims to uh, Estonia? I think in some ways it is. Yeah, you have this, this landowning nobility that's been around for half a millennia, so to speak. And for, for, uh, since a time before nation-states. Right, but don't tell anybody that, that. Uh, in 1919 who's publishing a newspaper, for example, or yeah. who's pitching a case to the Paris uh, Peace Conference. And actually that's another uh, sort of battlefield between the Western Ukrainians and the Poles is in Paris. And the Poles uh, were much better equipped, not only on the actual battlefield of Galicia, but in the meeting rooms of Paris, because they had a lot stronger relationship with the Allies, especially with France. And they had a delegation there for a couple of years before the peace conference even started. And the West Ukrainian Republic uh, was much more of an ad hoc affair, was much smaller had a lot fewer elites being a part of it. Uh, and they did send uh, a kind of spontaneous, let's say, delegation in May already, so close to the end of the main phase of the peace conference. But they were not really very well understood by the Allies. There's a great quote from, quote from uh, Lloyd George in the episode where he basically says, I think I saw a Ukrainian once in my life, and I don't really care to see anymore. <laughs> so it's almost like a, some exotic creature that he's barely familiar with. Wow. Um, already a very good basis for negotiations. Totally. Um, so one thing uh, that I do remember um, from our coverage of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk uh, is, you know, which of course also made, a, made the whole situation in 1918 even more complicated. And, um, is that, um, and sorry if I'm beating a dead horse, we already have talked about in length about the brutalization theory, but the experience of German soldiers in Ukraine after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, from what I understood, is something that laid the groundwork for modern fascist anti-Semitism in the German right-wing political landscape in 1919 and moving forward meaning that they were, I mean, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is a classic example, or was a classic example of um, basically Germany played, looked at the map, looked how much resources were available, and then just sent um, every man that they didn't need to fight there to extract the resources, you know, like in a video game, which then didn't work. So they sent like rear guard units into Ukraine, which was already a hot pot and a mess in 1917, 1918. And they were completely overwhelmed by irregular warfare, pogroms, uh, ethnic cleansing, um, and completely unprepared for the situation in terms of like equipment and resources, because in 1918 everything was sent to, uh, to the Western Front for Operation Michael. And this is where they caught on to the notion of um, equaling Jew Jewishness with Bolshevism. 
that this is something that they caught there and at some point basically got so numb to this to the violence that they also stopped differentiating between if something was you know just classic anti-semitism or uh, if something if someone was a bolshevik sympathizer and they just in their mind it became the same and that a lot of the officers that served there brought this experience with them to berlin and to Uh, to Germany, also to the Grenzschutz battalions uh, in Silesia and everything. Long story short, what about the situation of the Jews in this uh, yeah. situation? Do you know? Have you read anything about this? Yeah, I've read some about it, not only for this episode, but also for um, our previous episode on the Russian Civil War. And in the territory of, uh, well, let's say what's today Ukraine, Uh, in order to be able to specify at least some some kind of borders, the situation for Jews was uh, was among the most difficult because when you have this uh, state breakdown and when you have constantly shifting front lines, new armies come in. It's a classic uh, situation where there's no stable state that has a monopoly on violence that will be able to maintain law and order, and the Jews are obviously a very vulnerable group in this uh, kind of scenario. They usually didn't have any armed uh, forces of their own, although Lviv was an exception in the fall of 1918. That didn't help them in the end because once the Poles recaptured the city, they committed a pogrom that killed over 70 people and wounded over 400, which gets a mention in the episode. But um, There does become, a, there grows a kind of mix from what I've read of what you uh, refer to as classical anti-Semitism, so traditional anti-Semitism based on different factors, including economic uh, factors, but not exclusively, of course, um, and then this Bolshevik uh, connection. And frankly, there was some support for Uh, socialism and, and for the Bolshevik revolution amongst some Jewish communities. Um, and some of this is attributable, attributable to the anti-Semitism that they were suffering. So if you have one ideology, even though it has a lot of other things that we can criticize at length, that adopts a neutral, atheistic uh, approach to this question, is willing to give you responsibility and influence, um, then that might be more appealing than Ukrainian nationalism that wants to kill you or white Russian nationalism that wants to kill you. Um, and so I'm not an expert, I should point out, on this question, but these are the, these are the impressions I've gathered from the reading that I've yeah, some, done until this point. Some broad strokes, and uh, I think that's probably a topic that, we, that will accompany us throughout the next year of coverage, of course, because, I mean, as I said, a lot of the sentiment and the anti-Semitism was carried over uh, into Germany at this point. You can already see a lot of the ideological groundwork uh, for what later would become Nazi ideology in organizations like the Anti-Bolshevistische Liga um, and you know the Tulo, uh, Tulo organization, these kind of things. So you know. The organization council as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so that's something that we will dive into uh, later on. Um, changing subjects to the sub second episode that we have this month, uh, which is 
the occupation of the Rhineland by the Belgian, American, British and French troops. Yes, the infamous occupation of the Rhineland. And I'm sure there will be uh, a spirited debate in the comments about what this meant for the future uh, of Europe and future peace in Europe. Um, what I find interesting, of course, there are quite a lot of uh, people at the time in Germany who would like to push the narrative that somehow Germany wasn't really quite defeated on the battlefield and there was this stab in the back legend. And I think that for whatever reason that still echoes today and some people in the public and some uh, viewers of ours in the comments and so on still often wonder, well, why was the peace treaty the way it was? Why was Germany forced to accept? Uh, why did things kind of, why did the French feel they had to be so concerned about their security? Um, well, if nothing else, the fact that the Germans agreed to having uh, a big chunk of their country occupied and could not do anything to stop that, to me, is a, a pretty clear sign that they were on the losing side of the conflict. What and and it, it also, I mean, it's worth highlighting that the Allies already marched into this territory right after the armistice. Yes, of course, yeah. I mean, within a week, the, the march had begun because this was one of the terms of the armistice. Yeah. That even before the peace uh, treaty, I was going to say negotiations, let's say the peace treaty conference, because the negotiations were pretty much only within the, within the Allied side, began, this was a condition. And uh, the occupation began from pretty much the 1st of December when, when the Allied forces reached the border and then went up to the, to the Rhine. What I found particularly interesting is the, the sort of timeline of tensions in the, in the Rhineland occupation because the situation is so desperate and so chaotic in Germany that there is not a big open conflict. I mean, Germans are not happy that Allied troops are there and occupying them, and relationships are not necessarily all friendly and warm, but there is no, uh, let's say there is no real revolt, violent revolt movement in the first period of time. The violence will escalate and this will come, but only starting in 1920. And so that I thought was uh, quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting aspect was this chronological development. And one of the sparks that, uh, that sets this off is when the French decide to extend the occupation in the spring of 1920 to two other cities. Uh, so they advance, there's a clash, there's a violent clash where some German civilians are killed, some French colonial troops are involved, and then the shit really hits the fan as far as uh, a public campaign um, to discredit the French and to try to further you know, German interests. We don't go that far in the episode, but we, we do mention it and we talk about the, the build up to that where uh, the relationship, well, actually the relationship is not the right word because it's not based necessarily on the facts, but the perception of French colonial troops being part of the occupation was extremely 
controversial and then also extremely politically, use, politically useful for uh, the German government. What I found particularly interesting was the tension um, of the, let's say, Rheinisch people and the people in the, in the Rhineland and the tension towards... Um, the big bad Prussians like you? The big bad Prussians like me because I'm uh, in very big quotation marks, of course, Prussian and I uh, studied in Cologne and even today there is a somewhat an animosity between the, I mean, let's call it, let's say the culture isn't, you know, within the realms of German culture is noticeably different between the people in the Rhineland and in, let's say here in Berlin, for example. And that, of course, has historic roots, um, like the Prussians, uh, it's especially noticeable in Cologne because the Prussians, uh, I think there are some, I'm not an expert on it, but I think at some point they wanted to f uh, prohibit Carnival, which is like a huge thing in Cologne. And uh, I think they famously um, uh, put the, the, the army garrison of the Rhineland into Koblenz and the uh, government to Düsseldorf because the Cologne people were just annoyance to them. And uh, like over, and also Konrad Adenauer, who we mentioned, also was like a, there's some very spicy uh, diary entries of him, like how he dreaded uh, taking his private uh, government train into uh, t towards Berlin uh, when he was chancellor. Um, so, and I found it interesting that um, this even played a role and is almost like a kind of divide and conquer thing which the French tried to use after uh, the Treaty of Versailles where they didn't achieve their goal of having a separate Rhineish state. And you can see that Adenauer and other people are of course, um, first of all, scared of the political violence in Berlin, which you know plays into their perception of uh, you know, barbaric Berlin. Um, and I found that very interesting that this kind of sentiment was already there and that it also played a role in this situation, which I mean, it gives you some hints that you know within Germany, this in this situation, um, even though we always look at Munich and Berlin, there was like other parts of Germany, of course, which also had an opinion on on current <laughs> events and you know might have viewed things differently. One thing uh, that is important to highlight here is, of course, that you and I think that's going to happen over the summer is that there was a big labor and uh, revolutionary movement in the war, you know, which is a traditionally a workers region. But yeah, so that's, that for me was interesting because that's of course something that you never really hear about. When in, in school, when you study 1919, it's always about Berlin. Yeah, I mean, the, the French, I think it was a case a little bit of, uh, of wishful thinking, right? If they had, uh, understood the local conditions a little bit better, I don't think they would have bothered um, trying the way that they did. Maybe they still felt they could have imposed a solution via the peace conference, a sort of structural solution, where you say, sorry, kind of 1945 style, uh, the Rhineland is a separate country. Well, if the British and Americans had agreed to that, it could have happened. But what they ended up trying was something, they knew they couldn't get the, a solution through where the Rhine would become a type of border, whether it's an independent country on the western side or um, a loosely associated region of Germany that's kind of under French control, whichever of those two options they were hoping for. 
the idea that that would come about through uh, a local movement it just wasn't particularly realistic. I mean, for all the differences between the Rhinelanders and the Prussians and the Bavarians and the Saxons with, with, and the whoever's... I mean, ironically, with something like that, uh, you know, with having the French as an enemy, you know, which was already used as a tool in 1870 to, to unite all these uh, very, or not very, but quite different uh, areas of Germany, it would have led to the same thing, you know, where at one point suddenly they all have a common enemy again and then they stand together probably. Right, and I mean, it just fundamentally the pan-German identity was stronger than the regional uh, identity and so it wasn't really going to happen. Um, I mean, th there was really some, we don't go into uh, details about this in the episode, but there were really some grandiose attempts at roping in Napoleonic era history saying look yes France occupied this area in Napoleonic times and uh, quite a lot of German speakers fought in the Grande Armée uh, and so on and so forth and we brought you know laws and lots of progress to the region and so on well yeah but maybe if you want to have that generous interpretation on the other hand several generations of Germans had been fed a steady diet of, well, the Völkerkrieg, right? So the, the, or the Völkerschlacht in yeah. Leipzig, where we finally come together and, and throw off the French uh, yoke. So that interpretation was a lot stronger than the French attempt um, at peaceful penetration, as they called it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you know, what I also found interesting is, of course, the parallels, but I mean, that's probably something that, that maybe there's a study about this, but of course the parallels to uh, from this type of occ uh, occupation towards the occupation by the Allies uh, in the same region uh, starting in 1945, of course. Um, you know, I mean, the American Americans are still there, the British are slowly pulling out now, um, but, uh, you know, which, you know, it lasted much longer and came after a different kind of conflict. Uh, but I, you know, of course, there were some parallels there, which I, which I would be uh, interested in reading about in the future. Anyway, these were the two topics that we talked about that we are going to discuss in the um, in the episodes in July. Um, we also have an expert interview lined up for this episode, which is not really related to both of these episodes and topics that we just discussed. Nevertheless, I found it very interesting. It's something that um, people uh, request from time to time because it's a, a niche topic within a niche topic. It's uh, the Pacific colonies of Germany. Um, the Bismarck Archipelago, uh, German New Guinea, German Samoa. Um, some of you might remember that we did an episode back in 2018 or 2017 even about this briefly. Like it's a seven minute thing kind of summarizing what was going on there. It's very hard to research, let alone finding photos or video material of it. Um, but I was very happy to find uh, Sandra Barkhoff, uh, who is a researcher at the University of Plymouth, and she studies, or st her expertise are exactly these specific possessions of Germany. And she's at the moment also researching how they experienced the end of the war and what changed for these colonies, because as we discussed in the Versailles episode and in the Versailles podcast especially, 
ethnic self-determination was not something that was applied to the colonies. And uh, we're going to listen to the interview now. Just as a minor note, uh, we're going to talk a bit, very briefly, are talking about the so-called Blue Book and the situation in uh, former German Southwest Africa. Um, she briefly mentions it. It's not her focus topic. Um, if you're curious about it, uh, we are thinking of doing an episode about South Africa and the situation in the former German colonies in Africa early 2020, maybe late uh, 2019. And maybe let us know in the comments if this is something that you would be actually interested about. But now I'm going to stop rambling and we're going to listen to the interview I did with Sandra Barkov. So here we are with our monthly interview. And this month we will talk about a, well, exotic is not the right word, but interesting and not often mentioned topic, which is German colonies. And for this, I have a special interview guest here. This is uh, Sandra Barkov. Um, and she will say hi to you now and tell us in internet land who she is and how she came to study this topic. Hi, Sandra, how are you doing? Hello, how are you? Um, I'm a uh, lecturer in modern history at the University of Plymouth in the UK. And um, I specialize in German history. And uh, for the last few years, I've been studying, well, I started off by studying uh, the German colony in Jingdao in China. Uh, I had a particular interest in the uh, uh, German POW from Jingdao who spent the war in Japan. I've then moved on to also study the other German Pacific colonies, uh, particularly in Samoa. So I've looked at uh, German civilian internees from Samoa in New Zealand. Um, and I'm now moving into sort of the post-war period, into war German period, to look at uh, the pro-colonial movement there, and particular studying colonial memoirs and their role in political agitation in the interwar period. This is great. Such a coincidence that this is what we are going to talk about today. Indeed. Um, so I think we need to, I mean, so there's, I mean, talking about the German colonies is one thing, which is, I mean, maybe in the last few years had a bit of a renaissance as a topic in, in Germany, but it usually is about the African colonies. Mm -hmm. um, you said you speci you're specified and focused on the Pacific colonies. So mm -hmm. with that in mind, how did these colonies, which were much smaller and much more remote compared to the African colonies, how did they mm -hmm. perceive the, uh, the armistice and what happened in the later stages of the war? It's slightly difficult to judge, really, because um, I've studied quite a few eyewitness accounts and memoirs. Um, not many of them mention how they actually perceived the armistice. I mean, I've looked at German New Guinea, German Samoa, um, the, as I've just pointed out, the German colony in, or leasehold in Jingdao, and the German Pacific Islands, which, for example, included islands in the Marians and the Caroline groups. They had already been occupied by enemy forces in 1914. So German Samoa uh, surrendered to New Zealand troops without a fight. Uh, German New Guinea put up some resistance against uh, Australian troops, but didn't last very long. Um, and Japan occupied all the Pacific Islands north of the equator, as well as Jingdao. Now, Jingdao was besieged and finally surrendered in November 1914. Uh, so by the time the armistice was declared, all of these possessions had already been under enemy occupation for four years. 
Um, and during this period, they had very little or and often no information at all from Germany about the war, uh, since all the mail was, well, difficult to get through anyway, but was often completely prohibited. Or um, if it was allowed, it was usually censored. So all war information as such had to be gleaned from allied newspapers or other allied war reporting, um, which not surprisingly was perceived by most German colonists as enemy propaganda and uh, was often considered to be not uh, trustworthy or not a truthful account of what was really happening in the war. I've seen some comments in eyewitness accounts uh, to the effect that Allied reports on German defeats or losses were often dismissed as ridiculous lies. Uh, so the colonists themselves, as you've just pointed out, they were very remote. They found themselves thousands of miles away, uh, cut off from the fatherland and their families. They were often reduced to being little more than remote bystanders uh, to the war. They often sought refuge in patriotism, so a continued belief in German might and superiority, which provided them with some comfort and reassurance. Uh, so believing in German victory was something to cling to when the alternative really would mean disaster for them. Uh, so therefore, I can only assume that when the armistice was declared, it probably came as a bit of a shock to some German colonists in these very distant uh, colonies. Um, for them, the armistice equaled the loss of any hope, really, that one might be able to return to the pre-war status quo without any interruption. All right, that was already quite interesting. Um, when we when we talk about uh, the armistice and the, let's say, emerging new world order that was forged mm. in Versailles and in the other peace treaties and then later on with the League of Nations, um, mm -hmm. we have the this idea of uh, self-determination, ethnic self-determination, uh, the mm -hmm. 14, 14 point of Wilson. And I mean, yeah. we, we can see in uh, Africa and uh, I think in the Middle East, we can already see quite clearly in 1919 that, well, applying these 14 points to uh, people, <laughs> to non-white people, uh, is uh, a bit of a stretch for the, for the people that make this new world order. So mm -hmm. did the people in, uh, in the Pacific have any say in the armistice, uh, in, these, uh, in the post-war order, so to speak? Well, the short answer here really is uh, no, not really. Um, pretty much the same situation as you've just pointed out for the Middle East and Africa. Germany, of course, had signed the armistice on the basis of the 14 points. And the point that particular interests us here is point five. And I just I just quote that one for you. Um, point five said it, uh, there should be a free, open minded and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable government whose title is to be determined, end quote. Um, so Wilson himself had initially considered it what he called barbaric to simply annex territories and, and shift people around like a herd of cattle, that's what he called it. Um, however, many occupying dominions in the state had exerted pressure for annexation since at least 1915-1916. And as the war prog progressed, this pressure, of course, only increased, as did campaigns really designed to prove that Germany should not have her colonies returned to her after the war. I'll give you an example. In 1917, uh, Britain commissioned what they called the, uh, the Blue Book uh, to collect indigenous opinions in German Southwest Africa, really in order to prove what they termed Germany's tyrannical rule there. It was in preparation, of course, for claims that Germany was unfit to have colonies, which would then serve as a justification, uh, particularly for British South Africa, that they should annex. 
uh, German South West Africa. And this Allied propaganda had an enormous effect on popular opinion and contributed to the shift in Wilson's attitude too. So um, fast forward to after the armistice, uh, Germany really expected that there would be an independent commission that would decide the fate of the colonies after consulting with both the indigenous um, populations and Germany herself. And of course, Germany expected... uh, to some degree, that the indigenous populations would declare that they had a wonderful time under German rule and that the uh, colonies should be basically be returned to Germany. However, Wilson declared in early 1919 already that point five uh, basically had lost validity since Germany had forfeited her rights to the colonies already due to the colonial atrocities that basically had occurred during her rule. So Germany was essentially declared unfit to administer colonies. Uh, therefore, point five was actually used to strip uh, Germany of her colonies. The, um, it was done, and the official justification was that this was done to improve the life of the indigenous people. Um, the Allies argued that the war had liberated millions of, of natives, as they called it, who had, uh, I quote, helplessly suffered under the German yoke, end of quote. So the accusations um, of German colonial atrocities were here used to uh, what they what the Allies called to free free the, the indigenous people and um, and strip Germany of her colonies. This, of course, in itself was uh, was condemned in Germany. They called it the colonial guilt lie, uh, which then, of course, um, went hand in hand with the war guilt lie. That is slightly more well known than the uh, colonial guilt lie. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, just to backtrack a bit uh, to the Blue Book and that situation, I mean, it wasn't that the Germans in Southwest, uh, Southwest Africa behaved like saints, uh, as, you know, they were a colonial power. And if I remember, we had like the Herero-Nama genocide uh, mm-hmm. 10 years before the outbreak of the war. So did the Allies just basically amplify these or use these kind of things that actually happened? Or did they even make up certain things? Um, both. Um, I read a little bit on the Blue Book. I mean, Africa is not really my topic, no. but I did. I, I found it interesting. So I read a bit on the Blue Book and all this, this allied propaganda that was produ- produced during the time. It was in part propaganda and in part it was, of course, using real events. We all heard about the uh, uh, Herero uprising and uh, what happened in, uh, in German Southwest Africa. Um, so this was used, and they also sent people around to interview indigenous people. But there were issues with the uh, with the blue book, uh, which were later admitted by various people about how the um, how the opinions were collected, how the data was collected. So of course it was based on what actually happened, but it was also in part propaganda that was it was really driven by the desire of particular British South Africa that they wanted to annex um, uh, German South West Africa. This wasn't so much about, it was in part about the welfare of the indigenous people, but it was more about um, great power um, designs for, for Africa. So, so uh, yeah, creating, uh, fabricating something that already, uh, that helps the your opinion that you already have rather than going out and interviewing and making up your own opinion of based on what you research. It, it certainly was driven by the idea that there should be, the Blue Book should state certain things. And um, uh, so they used what actually happened to, um, 
to amplify this and uh, really put it in terms of this this propaganda that Germany should not have should not have colonies. This is not by any means taking away from what happened there. We all know about um, atrocities that happened in this particular colony, as particular um, as part of the Herero uprising. Um, but uh, there was never any doubt that the Blue Book should ever state anything different yeah. than what it essentially stated. Yeah, quite. Interesting. I mean, it's a quite interesting use of propaganda. I mean, um, it, yeah. you, know, there you have to, of course, always have different levels. And it, I think it usually helps uh, when or the people that create propaganda usually value having at least some aspects of it to be true and then just amplify it, which is yes. you know, a common uh, tactic used in the uh, 20th mm. century. Um, and it had, an, it had an enormous impact on popular opinion and actually on Wilson himself as well. It really shifted his opinion towards um, rather than negotiating after the war and talking to indigenous people and talking to Germany, it was more a case afterwards that he basically said, nope, um, this is a clear case of atrocities that happened. Germany should not have colonies. Quite interesting. So um, when we fast forward a few months, then, um, I mean, we have the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which then, mm -hmm. uh, as you just outlined, uh, stripped Germany of any uh, of, of their colonies. So what happened to the colonies uh, in 1919, especially after the Treaty of Versailles was signed? Okay. There was still pressure, of course, for annexation that never went away, but Wilson pressed for turning the former German colonies into League of Nations mandates. And after some difficult negotiations, uh, the colonies, as well as, of course, for example, territories of the former Ottoman Empire, were designated into A, B and C mandates, according to what the Allies termed the relative state of civilizatory development. So basically, it was it was judged on the basis of what the Allies considered to be, Can are they able to govern themselves or aren't they? Or how quickly will they be able to govern themselves? So the former German colonies in Western Central Africa became B mandates. They were merely administered by the mandate power and had a special legal status. Uh, many of them after the Second World War eventually became United Nations Trust territories and then were independent, were made independent sometime in the 1960s usually. Uh, sea mandates uh, included German Southwest Africa and by and large the Pacific possessions. They came under the law of the mandate power as an integral portion of its territory. So this pretty much equaled annexation. Um, again, after the Second World War, many of them would be turned into uh, legal, uh, United Nations trust territories and then again became independent sometime in the 1960s or even later. Um, but in addition, this is also quite interesting, great power agreements made during the war often also contributed to post-war colonial decisions. Uh, for instance, although both China and Japan had fought on the Allied side, uh, Jingdao was not returned to China as we might have expected, but was actually awarded to Japan, much to the outrage of the Chinese government. Uh, it wasn't returned to China until 1922, again as part of a great power agreement. Um, and if you just look at the German colonists themselves, they uh, usually lost everything. So German business property in these territories were by and large confiscated. Uh, most German colonists were repatriated, often if they wanted to or not. Um, and only many years later, in, in, in the case of some former German territories, some um, ter um, colonists were allowed to return if they so wished, but they essentially had to start afresh. They had to buy property and farms. I've, I've heard of some instances where some former German colonists were able to rebuy their former farms in Africa. 
Oh, that's quite interesting. Um, mm. the, the situation between China and Japan, that was the reason why China didn't sign the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, exactly, US. yeah. Yeah, I think we mentioned that when we just we just published our episode about the Treaty of Versailles since the centennial uh, is coming mm -hmm. up. So, um, I mean, there is the colonialism and, uh, you know, the perception of the empire. This one one part is looking at, at the colonies themselves, how they perceived it, and the local population, of course. And the other part is, of course, um, looking at Germany itself. Um, I know that, for example, uh, the return of Paul von Leto Vorbeck, uh, who you know mm -hmm. uh, called himself the Lion of Africa, um, mm -hmm. he, he returned uh, weeks after the armistice and actually also uh, laid down his weapons only weeks after the armistice, so he could you know build uh, this myth that he was undefeated, uh, etc. And I, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, there was also a similar, even though a bit less su uh, successful case of a German um, commander or officer who uh, hid in the jungle, uh, in, in quotes. And uh, <laughs> so we can already see this kind of um, um, myth building starting uh, right after the war, or even in the late stages of the war. So how was the loss of the colonies then perceived in Germany? Yeah, uh, that was interesting that you should mention that. I read about this, this chap hiding in the jungle. I think it was in New Guinea, in German New Guinea. but. Um, I believe it's by now turned out that this probably was a myth propagated by the person in question himself. Ah, yeah. So. <laughs> well, wasn't it something called uh, hiding among the cannibals or something like it? it I believe it, so, it, yes. It, yeah. it sounded like, um, like a horror movie from the 60s from the title. Uh, that's <laughs> it, it reminds me of the, um, there was a book, um, which I can't quite recall what it, was, it, what, what it was called, and I don't remember the name of the author, but uh, he was an explorer who explored especially German New Guinea um, back in the 19th century and had written this marvelous book praising mm. the... Um, the, the Pacific Islands and, and the Pearl of the South Sea sort of contributed to the myth of the South Sea. And it turned out that a year later he actually died in, um, I believe, in New Guinea. And there were rumors that he possibly was eaten by cannibals, although this is probably <laughs> not the case. But it's, uh, yeah, there's some interesting stories. But it that is exactly what it is. They are stories. They're building the myth of the colonial war, which then became so popular um, in the interwar period. So... To come back to answer your question, uh, the Allied declaration uh, that Germany had basically been incompetent and unable to administer her colonies was in Germany considered a national insult, as you'd probably not be surprised to hear. Um, the Weimar National Assembly voted on the 1st of March 1919 with an absolutely overwhelming majority in favor of the restoration of Germany's colonial rights. Um, and especially former colonists and businesses who had lost their livelihoods in the colonies um, lobbied the government um, for colonial restoration. And this led really to the emergence of a colonial revisionist or pro-colonial movement that would ensure that the demands for the return of the overseas territories would basically continue to be on the political agenda in Germany during the entire interwar period and actually attract widespread popular support. And that, of course, would uh, receive a new boost after 1933. I've been particular, since we've been talking about these stories, I've been particularly interested in colonial literature because after the war, in the aftermath of defeat and the loss of the colonies, we can also notice a continued popular desire and demand in Weimar Germany for accounts 
of the colonial war and colonial life in general, which led to a real boom of colonial literature and memoirs that lasted well into the interwar period. I've read quite a few of them, and they are absolutely fascinating. Uh, many of these colonial books promised exotic adventures and an escape from the demanding realities of post-war Germany, sort of reliving the glory days of imperialism and the greater German empire. And this genre of colonial fiction and non-fiction uh, continue to really capture the imagination, portraying this lost world of, of um, colonial grandeur, of empire, and also this escape to tropical shores that was for many way for many people was sort of a fascinating read. It was the adventure of the day, and while also pushing this idea um, of of German uh, colonial prowess, if you like. However, these colonial books and accounts were not just a form of nostalgic sentimental entertainment or backward-looking reminiscence of bygone days. Many of them were actually used by pro-colonialists to stir up imperialist agitation, to re-establish a colonial empire and address this colonial guilt lie. So I read quite a few uh, accounts. Some of them were already published during the war, but people who re were returning from the Pacific colonies. And many of them mention um, how the indigenous populations would give them a tearful goodbye, uh, would express hopes that the German flag might soon fly again uh, over, um, say, German Samoa. Um, and that is directly, of course, addressing these claims uh, that German colonial rule was, was bad, was tyrannical, was atrocious. So many of these former colonists tried their very best to, um, to put it right in their eyes, if you like. So it was, um, it was um, uh, they prob probably used the word uh, something like what happened to the Ascaris, the, the Troya yeah. Ascari, which is, oh, yes. uh, um, yeah. you know, that the, that the colonial subjects were very mm. loyal to the, uh, yeah. to the colonials and everything. That's a very popular trope in, in um, African memoirs or African accounts from colonial life there. Um, and we find very similar images um, in, in the Pacific. In the Pacific, there's... Um, the Pacific has the ad additional advantage, if you like, that already um, well in the 19th century and even before that, the Pacific was considered to be this, this kind of South Sea paradise. Mm. Um, there were these images of Tahiti, of, of beaches, of, of, um, of tropical paradise that had really already embedded itself in popular imagination of what the South Sea was like. So for people returning from from these colonies, it was quite easy to latch on to the South Sea trope and embed that into their memoirs and really try to get this image across that what Germany lost there was paradise, not just in terms of natural beauty, but also in, in terms of these loyal natives um, who had been very grateful for uh, Germany's civilatory um, achievements. I'm quoting here from, from various memoirs that I've read and various um, um, wartime stories that were recounted by people who returned, who just returned from especially Samoa. Quite interesting, quite interesting. Mm. Um, I don't, I'm trying to uh, catch my train of thought now. Um, so. I can tell you a little bit more about the uh, pro-colonial movement while we added. Yes, that is a very good idea. Let's talk <laughs> about the pro-colonial movement. Yeah. Um, as I've just pointed out already during the war, uh, many former colonists had, had really supported and, and lobbied for uh, a return to German colonialism, uh, potentially in the form of an immediate return to the German colonies. So basically just pick up where we left off 
after the war, uh, or otherwise a restoration or even enlargement of Germany's empire and her status as a great power. There, there were ideas, there were varieties of, of ideas, many of them utopian, of course, um, and didn't really find governmental support. But I read many plans of people saying, oh, well, we lost this colony here, uh, never mind, uh, maybe we should have a bigger colony here instead. Uh, so there were also ideas for restructuring a German empire, but definitely to have uh, a German empire. And pro-colonialists really argued that Germany needed to have colonies for her economic well-being, so raw materials, resources, recovery of industry after the war, and so forth. Uh, but colonies were also still considered to be the hallmark of being a great power. Uh, so after the national humiliation of defeat, the re-establishment re of a colonial empire would really equal Germany's re-emergence as a great power. So therefore, demands for colonies had economic, political, but also symbolic reasons. And this pro-colonial agitation could take many forms. I've seen quite a few examples of pamphlets uh, outlining why Germany should have um, colonies, uh, political lobbying. Um, it could often be found in interwar colonial magazines. Uh, it was espoused at meetings and rallies of the various colonial associations. Many of them had big annual meetings, but also monthly meetings where they talked about colonial affairs. In the 1920s, the pro-colonial movement initially had really widespread popular support and even a number of new colonial organizations were founded, um, consisting by and large, of course, of former colon, uh, colonials. But although, the, um, for example, the German colonial society, the Deutsche Kolonialgesellschaft, had only around 25,000 members in the mid-1920s, many of them were really influential members of the administration, the military and the business sector. So they did have an impact uh, when it came to uh, discussions in, uh, in Parliament. And uh, they made sure that these colonial questions remained on the political agenda throughout uh, the entire interval period. And the many eyewitness reports and memoirs that I've mentioned um, formed a key part of this discourse. Uh, so many of these publications more or less openly supported the pro-colonial movement and revisionism. Um, experiences were often embellished, uh, turned into semi-fictionalist and sometimes entirely fictionalized uh, narratives. Um, the aim of most of them was, of course, to memorialize the former colonies, but they also often reflected pro-colonial attitudes of their authors. They were often cause for action, or at least they were understood as such by their pro-colonialist um, readers. Um, of course, as the 1920s progressed, uh, it's not surprising to hear that the rest of the population grew somewhat increasingly indifferent uh, to colonial questions. They were, um, given the political and economic realities of the Weimar Republic, um, regaining a colonial empire became a somewhat utopian idea uh, rather than an actual political reality. It wasn't really until after 1933 that colonial revisionism and expansionism uh, rose to new prominence. Um, in the 1930s, there were countless colonial memoirs and literature being published. There were movies. Uh, you may have heard of um, there's one I can call this taboo, for example, uh, about the... Um, I think it's a fictitious um, South Sea island, but it, it's it's uh, it's really glorifying this idea of the of the of the South Sea paradise. Um, there were lectures, there were other events flooding the market, um, and the Rice uh, Colonial League, so the Rice Colonialbund, had really unprecedented success. They counted one million members by 1938. Wow! Mm. Wow! That's uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was fascinating. Um, as I um, 
as I said in the beginning, I mean, the topic of German colonialism has a bit of a resurgence in Germany in its, itself. Like the, mm -hmm. I think we're starting to have, a, at least in academics and somewhat in the public, have start to have an, a debate about this. But I think, mm -hmm. um, um, I think not a lot of people are aware that even of this uh, movement after the war, and certainly not that there was uh, the, uh, the Reichskolonialbund with one million members by 1938. I think that's something that uh, gets glossed over when we talk about our history quite a bit. It, it does, it does a lot. It, I, there's quite a few fascinating um, uh, books about looking at the post-colonial period. Um, uh, they often tend to focus on Africa because, of course, there's so much more material available. But um, I find the Pacific uh, colonies fit really well into this academic discourse. And um, I've, I've, uh, I've written a number of things on this already. I'm preparing a monograph on it as we speak. And uh, I've been studying, um, particularly, I've just been to Berlin, actually. I've just been to the, uh, to the library there studying colonial magazines of the interwar period. And there's some fascinating stuff in there. All right. Um, thanks a lot for your time, Sandra. Um, if, My pleasure. If our listeners want to uh, catch up on your research or on the topic, uh, would you? Are there any places online or any profiles or anything where they can follow you or uh, what you would recommend if somebody is interested in the topic? Um, certainly they can get in touch with me directly if they just search for my name, my University of Plymouth page comes up. Um, what I've been talking about particularly with uh, perception of uh, the pro-colonial movement in Germany, perceptions of colonies, uh, I have a chapter in uh, a book that I've edited uh, with a colleague called Angela Smith, um, and it's called War Experience and Memory in Global Culture Since 1914. It's a Routledge Studies in Cultural History uh, book. It um, came out relatively recently and there is a, a chapter um, by me on this very topic uh, in there um, which I'm now developing into something a bit bigger. Great. Um, thanks again for your time and my pleasure. Um, yeah let's have a, have a nice day. Same to you. All right. Uh, thanks again to Sandra for uh, having time making time for the interview. And now, at the end of the app of the podcast, very briefly, we're going to um, touch on some Patreon comments and questions that we saving got. the best for last. One question that we have, which I found interesting, is from Paul, and Paul asks, "I'm really enjoying the new format. Thanks, Paul. I would be interested in some coverage of war crime trials after World War One. I. I know they were much less prominent than after World War Two. Cheers. Cheers to that." Cheers to that. Um, yes, Paul is right. They were a lot less prominent than after World War II, but they were nonetheless a part of the peace treaty. In fact, they were one of the articles that the German government was most upset about and felt was most insulting to German honor, in quotation marks, let's say. And this was one of the, uh, one of the articles that they attempted to refuse in their compromise offer. Um, but of course the Allies then eventually uh, said no, we, we want to keep that clause in there. Now the focus uh, or the most prominent potential war criminal in the eyes of the Allies was the Kaiser. But the Kaiser, as uh, our listeners probably know or possibly know, basically escaped to Holland and the Dutch government absolutely refused to give him up for any kind of trial whatsoever so he was able to 
peacefully live in his little villa and chop wood and stuff until he died in 1941. There were a couple of, uh, let's say, small-scale trials of a very small number of people who did not really end up serving a serious sentence in any way, shape, or form because the German state was not interested in pursuing them. So, of course, that is going to be the end result. In Turkey, um, while the old Ottoman government was still in power before the new Turkish Republic uh, took over, in July 1919, there was uh, a Turkish court-martial that condemned uh, some of the architects of the Armenian Genocide to death. So Jamal Pasha, Enver Pasha, uh, Talat Pasha and uh, Dr. Nazim were condemned to death, but none of them were in Turkey at the time. So that sentence was never carried out by the Turkish government, uh, and then it was replaced by a different Turkish government that had no interest in carrying out such a sentence, um, although a couple of them were assassinated by uh, Armenians. They uh, took matters on. into their own hands, basically. Yes. Uh, which is also something that, of course, we will cover uh, in our episodes in the future. And do not generally condone for any of our listeners. Yeah. The only YouTube history channel that doesn't <laughs> condone, condone political assassinations. Vigilante justice. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, another interesting question that we got is from Elliot uh, Wright, and it's a bit more about the production of the show. Uh, he wrote a very long piece, but he basically asks if uh, we would be willing and interested to, to uh, have a format or videos where we revisit battles from, 19, from the 1914 to 1918 era, some of the big, uh, big power battles, and dive a bit more into uh, tactics and strategy used at these battles, like a more, uh, a more a closer look at these battles and also something that is more compressed than our weekly coverage of these battles, which often lasted weeks and months. And to that I say, we are open to the idea um, of revisiting topics from the 1914 to 1919 area. I think we don't, or 1918 era. I don't think we need to be super stingy about only covering events from exactly 100 years ago. I mean, that's fun and it's always a great hook. Um, and I think it's not ruled out that we would revisit these topics. However, as our current financial situation stands, we have the budget, thanks to your support on Patreon, we have the budget to do our two lengthy, detailed episodes about the events 100 years ago, which are insanely complicated, as we you know, just briefly mentioned again with talking about Ukraine, which take a lot of time to research. Um, you know, where it is very hard to get archive material and everything. So we have the financial um, backing from, thanks to you guys, to pull off these episodes. But at the moment, we don't have any extra uh, leg room to, say, make a very detailed documentary series about tactics used as a battle of Radon, even though that would be really, really cool to do that. And at some point, I hope we will be able to do that. Uh, maybe, you know, I think that would actually be something that maybe we could find a sponsor for that, uh, you know, that could happen or, um, you know, or funding drastically increases or some scenario like that. I could totally see that um, or maybe some completely other form that we haven't thought about yet. We win the lottery. We win the lottery, for example. Um, but at the moment, like this very moment, 
June 2019, I, uh, I don't think it's uh, possible actually. Um, but if you're actually interested in this kind of thing, um, just to get a basic idea of you know, how popular this would be, maybe you know, write us in the comments or write us a message if you would be interested in this. We so. are interested in going into detail into particular battles though, as, as we may see in the future. Yes. And with that kind of uh, question and answer, which was a bit more related to production than the actual history, we will end this very long episode of the, of the Supporter Podcast. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. As, uh, again, uh, thanks for your support. And we will see you in August with more complicated topics. Who would have guessed? Thank you and see you next time. Cool. cool.